Hey everyone, this is Mimi Blue and you are listening to Human Dialectic and this is the Dialectic Bulletin series. If you are a returning listener, you're probably like, where the hell have you been? It's been two and a half months. I totally understand and I'm not going to go into too much detail as to where I've been because we have a lot of news that we need to cover in today's episode. But basically, I apologize. It's just been insane For the month of August, I didn't plan my trips accordingly. So literally every weekend and then the last two weeks of August, I was traveling. And though it was great, I planned it poorly. It was really bad. I could not do a podcast on the road. And then when I finished my last trip, I got sick for about three weeks. I've never been that sick before. And you may be knowing some people who are getting sick, but it's been unusual because people have been sick for a long period of time. I I caught something. I got whatever it was. The strange thing is I did not have any type of nasal congestions. It was a horrific cough. So anyway, that's what has happened to me. And now I'm just getting back on this bandwagon. There's so much that has transpired the past couple of weeks ever since August. I mean, going back to the Hawaii fires. And today we're going to touch on a lot of topics, including what is most important, the conflict in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. They're calling it the Gaza Strip, but it's really against the Palestinians. I want everybody to understand that I'm going to present information without actually in, in inserting any emotion in here. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm trying to be indifferent, but there are a lot of people who are reacting to the situation in a very illogical way. And you have to study the facts. You have to understand how this could have happened if Israel has the strongest or one of the strongest militaries and secret intelligence agencies, okay? It does not make any sense how this happened. So I want to break down what information has come up the past week because if we don't stop and think and start asking hard questions, we are all going to end up in a world war. For Americans who've never been a war before, Don't think that you can just sit behind a laptop and you're going to be okay. This is going to be a world war that nobody has ever encountered before. So we need to sit back, take a breather, really study the facts, understand the history, understand who these, if you want to call them militant groups or terrorist groups are, you need to understand how they even came about. Because if you don't understand who created these terrorist groups, then you're fighting the wrong person. You are fighting the wrong opposition, even though the terrorist groups are horrible, but they are working for somebody else. So we need to take a step back and and really understand and rationalize what's happening here. We also need to talk about Hawaii. There are some ties to this as well. Literally the same forces doing the same thing in Middle East and now, you know, previously, well, I shouldn't say now, but previously it was in Hawaii, all the same forces. We're going to talk about the economy. The economy is literally at the brink. I do not know when the collapse is going to happen, but it's really bad. There are certain facts and numbers that I need to present to everybody going into the holidays. Do not overspend. Do not overspend. 
be very meticulous on where your dollar is going because trust me, next year is going to be very bad. Of course, we have the elections that are coming up. I really don't know if we're going to have the elections. I, I thought we were not going to have 2020, but we did. But I don't know. I could be wrong here. So there are a couple things that we need to talk about. But of course, I want to get into the conflict that's happening right now and how else to begin it or at least begin that topic is at least by educating all of you before you come to some type of conclusion. So the first thing, the first thing you need to ask yourself is who is Hamas? Who do they work for? Who do they report to or take commands from and who created Hamas? Okay. There, there are going to be links in the description of this episode. So if you think I'm bluffing, you can go right ahead and take a look at them or you do your own research, but you need to understand the different terrorist groups, right? You have Hamas, which is tied to the Palestinians, not really the group of Palestinians, but they're associated with Palestine. Hezbollah, which is associated with Lebanon. You have ISIS, which is associated with Iraq. Al-Qaeda, which is associated with Pakistan. And then you have the Taliban associated with Afghanistan. Why is it important to know all of this? Because if you don't understand the different terrorist groups, which they all have a similar agenda, right? They're all Arab. They're all in the Middle East. They have their own association, but there's a reason why they emerged. They didn't just emerge out of nowhere. They were funded, they were trained, and then they became radicals. So once you understand the different groups, you will then understand that they all have a similar agenda. They all work under the same sort of principles here, okay? So let's get into the history of the Middle East. How did the state of Israel come about? There are a couple clips that I do want to play, and then I will go into a little bit more detail in terms of the history. And this is so important because I'm not here to convince you of choosing a side. I want you to look at the past and figure out where we are heading. It does not matter if you think that you are the good guy because you're choosing one side over another. Look at the past and figure out what the future holds. So let me play this clip and then we'll get into a little more details about the history of Palestine and Israel. Palestine went from this to this and it didn't happen overnight. Up until the early 1900s, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, a religiously diverse land where Muslims, Christians, and Jews lived alongside each other. Then, things begin to change. With the start of the Zionist movement in Europe calling for the establishment of an independent Jewish state, ideally in Palestine, the first wave of European Jews start to immigrate. By the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire collapses and Palestine is under British rule. It's 1917. Britain declares its support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The number of Jewish settlers grow, fueling tensions between the Arabs and the Jews. The violence between the two sides caused Britain to bow out and let the UN take over. The UN approves of a plan to split Palestine into two states. Jewish Israel, Arab Palestine. The city of Jerusalem, which is sacred to Muslims, Christians and Jews, is now a UN-controlled international zone. Jews accept the UN partition plan and declare independence as the State of Israel. But neighboring Arab countries object to the land takeover. This marks the beginning of the first Arab-Israeli war. 
Israel is victorious and makes a grab for the land intended for the Palestinian state under the UN. The land gets divided into three parts. Jordan occupies the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Egypt occupies Gaza, and the state of Israel takes 78% of historic Palestine, including West Jerusalem. 700,000 Palestinians become refugees as a result, and the day is remembered as Al-Nakba, the catastrophe. It's 1967. The Six-Day War breaks out between Israel and neighboring Arab countries, and by the end of it, the map looks something like this. Palestine is now fully occupied by Israel. Despite the absence of a formal peace treaty, things start simmering down. Then Israelis start settling into Gaza and the West Bank, resulting in an Israeli-Palestinian struggle that gives rise to the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Their main goal? To liberate Palestine from Israel by any means necessary. Fighting goes on for years. The PLO eventually accepts dividing the land between Palestine and Israel, but the conflict doesn't end there. More settlers make their way into Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. The international community considers this illegal. The frustration of the Palestinians leads to an intifada. As a result, Hamas is born, a political movement determined to fight against Israeli occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The United States, Israel, and the PLO signed the Oslo Agreement to split the West Bank into three sections. Area A, under full Palestinian control. Area B, under joint Palestinian-Israeli control. And Area C, under full Israeli control. But the solution creates a problem. Area C contains the majority of West Bank's agricultural land, water, and minerals. Palestinians have limited access to these. Further peace talks prove unsuccessful. Palestinians lose hope, resulting in the second intifada. And Israel begins building walls and setting checkpoints to control Palestinian movement. It's 2005. Israel withdraws from Gaza, but continues settlements in the West Bank. Hamas gains power in Gaza and splits from the Palestinian Authority, seeing it as being too secular. The West Bank and Gaza are now under separate leadership. Israel imposes a blockade restricting any form of movement by land, air, or sea. It's 2017, and this is the current situation of Palestine. There are solutions on the table, but will we see them implemented in our lifetime? So that was a brief version, a three-minute clip, roughly three-minute clip, of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. But there are layers to this history. You got to understand how a lot of these, these states came about, including Israel. You also have to understand the relationship between the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. So I'm going to touch that just a little bit because it can get a bit confusing. But these are things that you need to understand because it's going to connect the dots. So first, we need to understand the Middle Eastern region and how it has been a focal point and, and also a an important agenda towards the Zionist movement. Now, when I say Zionist, it is not to denigrate the Jews, even though there are people who use that term. The Zionists are essentially the elite crust of the Jews, just as in the States, they consider themselves the elite or the 1%. These are folks who feel that they are the enlightened ones. They are the ones who can establish order or can create policy or can can drive international affairs and relationships 
they think that they are the chosen ones and therefore they can do whatever the hell they want. So when I say the term Zionist, that is what I am referring to. I'm not trying to be anti-Semitic here. I'm literally using the same terms that they have in their white papers, how they call themselves, but people don't understand definitions. They don't understand history. So I'm going to read an article entitled The Greater Israel, and you're going to hear a clip afterwards that's from that documentary. But this is what the article states. When viewed in the current context, the war on Iraq, the 2006 war on Lebanon, Lebanon, the 2011 war on Libya, the ongoing war on Syria, not to mention the process of regime change in Egypt, must be understood in the relation to the Zionist plan for the Middle East. The latter consists in weakening and eventually fracturing neighboring Arab states as part of an Israeli expansionist project. Greater Israel consists in an area extending from the Nile Valley to the Euphrates. The Zionist project supports the Jewish settlement movement. More broadly, it involves a policy of excluding Palestinians from Palestine, leading to the eventual annexation of both the West Bank and Gaza to the state of Israel. Okay, are you following me? Greater Israel would create a number of proxy states. It would include parts of Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, the Sinai, Sine, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, as well as parts of Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Greater Israel requires the breaking up of the existing Arab states into small states. And they've been doing this. And this is me. This is not the article now. They've been doing this very strategically for the past 15, 20 years. For most Americans and pretty much everyone around the world, as you remember 9-11, okay, 9-11 was a staged event. People did die, okay? I'm not saying that people didn't die. There were a lot of casualties. There were a lot of fatalities as a result of that. However, 9-11 was intended to get the U.S. into the Middle East. And you can see that we destabilized a lot of the nation's in the Middle Eastern region, we even went straight to to Libya, killed Gaddafi. In Egypt, we had the Arab Spring. And so you can see this trend. We tried to destabilize Syria and it wasn't as successful. When Obama came in, he was droning the hell out of the Middle East. So you have to look at the past and look at the bigger picture because this is all something that is leading to a bigger agenda. So let me play this clip to give additional context and then we need to talk about the history prior to the state of Israel. Oded Yanan. Oded Yanan is the Israeli scholar who put forth the paper a strategy for Israel in the 1980s. And in that paper, it's a plan that's outlined to basically divide up the Arab world and Iran too, I believe, into smaller states with the idea that smaller states are weaker states and therefore easier to dominate and control. The goal is divide and conquer. If people are pitted against each other and fighting each other, then they are basically, their attention is diverted and it's easier for uh, the empire power to take the resources and subjugate the people, and, and uh, then you have uh, colonialism. Oded Yanon put forth such, an, such ideas that Israel should use uh, 
its military power to destabilize and uh, uh, fragment Israel's enemies. This was put forth, as I said, in 1982 during the, the Begin administration, when, of course, Begin did invade Lebanon, and perhaps that was, uh, though it, 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 it failed, uh, some historians have contended there was a, a greater, a broader plan intended there to, to mm -hmm. affect uh, more of the Middle East uh, to advance Israeli security. I might say that the late Israel Shahak translated Ganon's uh, study and the, in, into English, and the name of the translation was the Zionist Plan for the Middle East. Now, after 1996, the neoconservatives started to emphasize that the threat wasn't simply to Israel, but it was a threat to the United States, that there was a terrorist threat from the uh, Islamic and Arab countries and groups in the Middle East, that the United States had to do something about it. The fundamental threat they emphasized came from Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Just want to point out that in both Yanone and uh, uh, Study and uh, A Clean Break, uh, there was an emphasis on attacking Iraq first, that Iraq was a, uh, a key let's say, a uh, geostrategic location for Israel to uh, destabilize uh, all of its enemies in the mm -hmm. Middle East. So in this paper, there's basically, it's a very, it was a right-wing proposal, but nevertheless, you see it's coming to, to pass today with the proposal to divide Iraq into three, into three parts, which is not what Iraqis want. Um, Iraqis, the majority of Iraqis, want the occupation to end. They want the restoration of Iraq. Eastern Libya was where the Libyan Revolution began. The first protests on February 17th occurred here. The NTC was formed here. And it was the mission to protect Eastern Libyan civilians from Gaddafi's forces that gave the UN and NATO their justification for military intervention. This also happens to be where the majority of Libya's oil production takes place. Libya was divided into three provinces in the post-independence era, with the eastern province, known as Cyrenaica, hosting the country's economic capital in Benghazi. There remains a lot of nostalgia in the east that makes a return to that early system seem appealing. Certainly there are enough resources in eastern Libya for it to exist as a viable autonomous province. So we have to ask, who is behind this agenda? Who is orchestrating or pulling the strings here? And as much as I want to say that it is the CIA, it is also Mossad, okay? Israel is creating an issue and trying to resolve it. And we will get into the details as to why their security failed. It should have never failed. So to me, it sounds like it was a stand down or something. It was very similar to 9-11. But we need to understand who is behind all of this? This isn't something that they just magically started planning in the 80s. It's not something that they just magically started planning shortly after World War II. This is something that has been in the works for quite some time. And there are specific empires, Great Britain being the sole one here, Empires in the past have wanted this for a very long time. They wanted this conflict and they've orchestrated similar events in the past. 
Now, before playing this clip, yes, there are the Kazarians. If you're not familiar with the Kazarians, I would suggest that you do separate research on it. There's just not enough time to discuss it now. But the Kazarians used to own a large portion of Europe. And the Kazarians are also known as the Bowers, who then changed their name to the Rothschilds. And you know who the Rothschilds are. But they have a, a very integral part in all of this. However, the clip that I'm about to play is just tying in Great Britain and the origins of this conflict. It really does go back even further than that because you're dealing with the Knight Templars and how they've eventually evolved or how they have some type of association with the Kazarians and the Rothschilds. It's very complicated. I'm trying to simplify this as much as possible. But let me play this clip regarding the origins with Great Britain and how they were involved in this entire mess. The bitter struggle between Arab and Jew for control of the Holy Land has caused untold suffering in the Middle East for generations. It is often claimed that the crisis originated with Jewish emigration to Palestine and the foundation of the State of Israel. Yet the roots of the conflict are to be found much earlier, in British double-dealing during the First World War. This is a story of intrigue among rival empires, of misguided strategies, and of how conflicting promises to Arab and Jew created a legacy of bloodshed which has determined the fate of the Middle East. During the First World War, the British, the French, and the Russians had these secret plans to carve up the Ottoman Empire because they believed that would balance out their imperial ambitions, but tough luck for the Turks, the Arabs, and anyone else who got in the way. Certainly, all the seeds were planted then, in the sense that it was the British who promised the Arabs independence on the one hand, and uh, a Jewish homeland on the other, and you could not simply reconcile one with the other. The British scattered promises to anyone who might be of some use to them without thinking about the consequences. So British duplicity, British double dealing, went a long way to perpetuate the conflict in Palestine. At the end of the day, when you're fighting a war, you are very liberal in what you're offering in terms of a post-war settlement. And when you get down to the conference table when the war has ended and you have to start honoring your agreements, you then have to decide what's in your interest or not. And the British saw the Middle East as a Western flank for their power in India and their power in Asia in general. The story of Britain's involvement in the Middle East and the ensuing struggle between Arab and Jew begins with her colonial past. At the beginning of the 20th century, King Edward VII ruled over a vast empire with interests in every part of the world. India became increasingly important because uh, it was the second pillar of British power in the world. Moving the Indian army about was extremely important in extending British interests and British influence across the globe. And the Suez Canal was, of course, the quick way to do that. 
It's very important for the British uh, geopolitical position to ensure the Suez Canal remains safe and secure. With this aim in mind, Britain had become the only European power to establish a major foothold in the Middle East, in the principalities around the Persian Gulf, in Aden, and in Egypt. Britain had annexed Egypt from Turkey's Ottoman Empire in 1882, and by the time it was made a protectorate in 1914, Cairo had become the center of British power in the Middle East. The presence of imperial troops in the region was of vital strategic importance, for the Ottoman Empire under Sultan Mohammed V was in alliance with Britain's much-feared rival, Germany. Together with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, these countries made up the Central Powers, and pitted against them were the three allies, Britain, France and Russia. So we went back in history to understand how we got to this point, and clearly we now have a little bit of clarity as to where we are heading. And I hope you understand that there are different tribes. I didn't talk about the Sunni and the Shiites, but they're essentially one of the same. They're they're both Muslims, okay? <laughs> they're of, of different Arabic tribes. Uh, however, they do not like each other, of course, with different tribes, there will be conflict. There shouldn't be conflict, but that's the situation. But now you know that there are different militant or terrorist groups, and those terrorist groups all have some link to Mossad, the CIA, um, MI6. They all have connections. And usually these groups are created to destabilize a region. And then, of course, the Western civilization will come and swoop in and, and try to save the day or insert somebody that they feel that they can control in a power, a position of power. In this case, you have Hamas and Hamas is directly linked to Hezbollah, which I said is associated with Lebanon and Lebanon takes orders from Iran. If you are still following me, because this is really deep, why should we be concerned about Iran? Now, Iran has an alliance with Russia right now. As you've noticed the past couple of years, they've become very friendly to Russia and China. They also have developed nuclear weapons. And that couldn't have happened without Obama. If you remember, right before he left, there was a plane that took cash. I think it was a ridiculous amount of cash. It was like couple hundred million in cash, dropped it off in Iran in the middle of the night. And that was handled by Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett was born in Iran and she has an allegiance to Iran. Obama has an allegiance to the Muslim Brotherhood. And we all know if you have eyes and can critically think that Obama is running the Biden administration. And in August, I think it was August or September, it's out actually in September, on September 11th, Biden released $6 billion, which was frozen to, it was frozen in, I think it was South Korean or North Korean accounts, one of the Korean accounts, in exchange for American hostages. 
I know I, it seems like I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place right now, but these are all connections and this is why it's very important. Let me play a news clip so that you can get a better understanding of how all of this is connected. Those buttons. Now, to start with, it's not a secret that Iran has been backing Hamas for many, many, many years now. Despite the fact that Iran is ruled by a Shia Muslim regime and Hamas is a Sunni Muslim fundamentalist organization, in this particular case, it doesn't seem to matter. Iran has been backing Hamas in their fight against Israel for decades now, with some estimates, by the way, showing that the Iranian regime sends Hamas somewhere around $100 million per year, which is then used for weapons, training, and just general funding. Now, there have been some infighting between Hamas and the Iranian regime during the Syrian civil war, but that was a relatively short period of time. And generally, Iran has been a staunch supporter of Hamas in their fight against Israel. And this latest attack, well, it appears to be no different. Although, right at this moment when you have the fog of war, the level of involvement that Iran actually had in this attack, well, it depends on who you ask. And so, on the one side, you have senior members of both Hamas and Hezbollah who spoke with the Wall Street Journal, and they said the following. Quote, Iranian security officials helped plan Hamas's Saturday surprise attack on Israel and gave the green light for the assault at a meeting in Beirut last Monday. Officers of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps had worked with Hamas since August to devise the air, land, and sea incursions, the most significant breach of Israel's borders since the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And this, frankly, would make sense, because it's potentially this Iranian involvement in the planning process going all the way back to at least last August, which might help to explain why this assault, which was multifaceted and very tightly coordinated, flew completely under the radar of Israel's intelligence agencies. The article continues, quote, Details of the operation were refined during several meetings over in Beirut attended by Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps officers and representatives of four Iran-backed militant groups, including Hamas, which holds power in Gaza, and Hezbollah, a Shiite militant group and political faction in Lebanon. And so, according to these senior officials from within both Hamas and Hezbollah, Iran was heavily involved in the planning process leading up to the surprise attack over the weekend, with several in-person meetings taking place over in the capital city of Lebanon, which is Beirut, between Iranian military officials and representatives of both Hamas and Hezbollah. And this account of theirs, it was substantiated by both a European official as well as an advisor to the government of Syria. Also, when speaking on this particular subject just yesterday, you had Israel's ambassador to the United Nations say the following, quote, We know that there were meetings in Syria and in Lebanon with other leaders of the terror armies that surround Israel, so obviously it's easy to understand that they tried to coordinate. The proxies of Iran in our region, they tried to be coordinated as much as possible with Iran. However, this behind-the-curtain Iranian involvement is actually publicly being denied by all the actors involved, except for Israel. For their part, Mr. Mohammed Murdawi, who is a representative of Hamas, he said that they planned the attacks on their own, and he added that, quote, this is a Palestinian and Hamas decision. Likewise, you had the spokesman for the Iranian mission over at the United Nations say that while Iran supports the actions of the Palestinians, they did not actually direct them. Here was his statement specifically, quote, the decisions made by the Palestinian resistance are fiercely autonomous and unwaveringly aligned with the legitimate interests of the Palestinian people. We are not involved in Palestine's response as it is taken solely by Palestine itself. However, these statements from the Iranian government should very obviously be taken with a grain of salt because, well, it's to their benefit to fly under the radar in terms of their actual involvement. The current Iranian regime, they very openly wish death to Israel, but in the eyes of the international community, well, it's to their benefit to deny any direct involvement with the most recent attacks. 
Although it is really worth mentioning that denying involvement, well, it did not stop the Iranian government from publicly celebrating the attacks against Israel over on their state TV stations. Take a look. So that's that. However, more interestingly, just yesterday, you had the Biden administration's State Department come out and they also denied any knowledge of Iran's involvement. In fact, just yesterday, you had the Biden administration's Secretary of State, Mr. Anthony Blinken, he was on CNN and he said this regarding Iran, quote, we have not yet seen evidence that Iran directed or was behind this particular attack, but there is certainly a long relationship. However, it's worth mentioning that this statement from Mr. Blinken should also be taken with a grain of salt because it's in the Biden administration's best political interest right now to not have Iran be directly involved in the surprise attack. That's because if Iran is indeed behind this attack, it creates a political quagmire for Joe Biden ahead of the upcoming presidential election, given the fact that this attack took place just a few weeks after he released $6 billion to the Iranian government. Although that money requires a little bit of backstory. Back in August of this year, Joe Biden, secretly, without the authorization of the U.S. Congress, he agreed to a special deal with the Iranian regime. It was a prisoner swap, wherein Iran would return five Americans who were being held prisoner, while the U.S. would return six Iranian prisoners back to Iran. That seems fair enough. However, in addition to this prisoner swap, somehow, Joe Biden also agreed to release $6 billion worth of controlled funding back to Iran. Because you see, Iran had this $6 billion sitting over in a bank in South Korea. However, because of American sanctions, the U.S. put pressure on South Korea to freeze those funds. The government of South Korea complied, and they made those funds inaccessible to the Iranian regime. But somehow, during this negotiation process, Iranian officials, they convinced the Biden administration to unfreeze those funds so that they could be used for humanitarian purposes. And they did. The money was unfrozen, and it was sent over to an account in Qatar to be used by Iran. And wouldn't you know it? Just about a month later, you have this attack over in Israel. But here's where things get a little bit tricky. Because even though the terms of the deal demand that this money be used by Iran strictly for humanitarian purposes, well, you had the Iranian president recently come out after the deal was done, and he said that the money will be spent on whatever they want. Here's specifically what the Iranian president said regarding this $6 billion. Quote, this money belongs to the Iranian people, the Iranian government. So the Islamic Republic of Iran will decide what to do with this money. Humanitarian means whatever the Iranian people needs. So this money will be budgeted for those needs and the needs of the Iranian people will be decided and determined by the Iranian government. Now this story gets a lot deeper, but we have to pay bills around here. And so let me quickly introduce the sponsor of today's episode by showing you this little piece of money. Or rather, I should say that this is fake money being printed into oblivion by those geniuses over in Washington, DC. And so before they completely obliterate your life savings, what I recommend you do is to convert that fake money into real money, which is physical gold and silver. And the best company to use is the sponsor of today's episode, American Hartford Gold, who also happens to be my own personal gold and silver bullion dealer. They have thousands of other five-star ratings across the country. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They ship quickly, directly to your doorstep. Their product listings are awesome. They're stacked with great options of gold and silver bullion and coins, and they have amazing customer service. When you pick up the phone and call them, you feel good knowing you support a company that supports the truth getting out into the wider American audience. And so calling them up is a no-brainer. 
But best of all, if you tell them that Roman sent you, they will throw in up to $5,000 worth of free silver with your first purchase. It's 866-242-2352. Or you can simply text the word Roman, R-O-M-A-N, Roman, to 65532. Of course, all their details will be down in the description box below. And now let's head on back to the studio. Now, on the flip side, the Biden administration is continuing to defend this $6 billion lifeline that they gave to Iran by claiming that they are closely monitoring the money, which is currently in Qatar, and supposedly they have some sort of a mechanism in place to ensure that it is solely used for humanitarian purposes. In fact, when he was asked about it just yesterday over on CNN, here was what Anthony Blinken said regarding this money. Quote, the account is closely regulated by U.S. Treasury Department, so it can only be used for things like food, medicine, medical equipment, and so on. The facts are these. No U.S. taxpayer dollars were involved. But this is exactly where you have to dissect the truth from State Department political positioning. Because for one, Anthony Blinken said here that no U.S. taxpayer dollars were involved in the attack on Israel. And that is technically true. However, it's technically true because that $6 billion was not U.S. tax money. It was Iranian oil revenues that were frozen by the U.S. over in South Korea. And so if you release the funds and Iran uses those funds for terrorism, you can still claim that no U.S. taxpayer dollars were involved. But that does not mean that the $6 billion were not involved. Regardless, though, the other point that the State Department is failing to consider when making such broad sort of statements is that money is fungible. It can easily move from one pocket to another. And so just as an example, the Iranian regime now knows that they have $6 billion waiting for them in escrow over in Qatar to be used on things like food, medicine, building schools, and so on. That's great because they can now use their own money that they had previously allocated to things like food, medicine, and building schools to instead fund terrorism. And so then the State Department, they can tell us that everything is great because the $6 billion is being used on food and medicine. But what they're not telling us is that an equivalent amount of money within Iran that was already allocated for food and medicine is now being used to potentially fund the Hamas terrorists over in Israel. And frankly, the Iranian government is not shy about this. Here is, for instance, a video of the Iranian parliament from the year 2020. Iranian lawmakers chanting death to America. Uh, that is clearly how they feel, or certainly uh, the way that they are expressing themselves. Fred I don't know about you, but after watching that video, well... I feel compelled to give those people another $6 billion myself. I'm sure nothing will go wrong. Regardless, in the coming days and weeks, as you listen to the Biden administration's State Department reiterating time and time and time again that they have no knowledge of Iran's involvement, well, consider taking that with a grain of salt because it's in their best interest for Iran to not be involved. If you'd like to go deeper into the story and read some of the sources from today's episode regarding the involvement of Iran, as well as this whole $6 billion funding fiasco... Okay, so I had to just stop it there. Are you still with me? Are you you following the bouncing ball? Because it is really deep. And this is why I mentioned that we should not get emotional. If you have this context, you are going to understand what the next steps will be. They want a world war, okay? Things are collapsing. A lot of nations are dealing with... Uh, very small rebellion. Well, I shouldn't even say small, like huge rebellions on the brink of a revolution. And they cannot lose control here, which then brings me to Israel. I can't remember the episode where I reported on Netanyahu 
coming back to power again. I did not believe that he actually won the votes. I'm just going to speculate that. I don't believe he he truly won. I don't think the people wanted him back. And since then, it has been very controversial. And I've reported on what has been happening in Israel here and there. And But there have been other things that I've been focusing on. But part of my research discovered that there has been an extreme conflict internally in, in his administration. Uh, the people are divided. People were revolting against the judicial changes that he has been making. And it's almost the similar situation that we're seeing here in the States where you're seeing folks who are very divided, but at the same time, I think people are beginning to wake up and that is more frightening to the people in power and the politicians than for people to be divided. So Netanyahu was struggling. His poll numbers were not great. People were looking at him as a dictator, or at least he was not the uh, most favorable prime minister. And this has been a man who's been in power for many, many years. Now, why is this all important? Because that country was literally on the brink of a civil war. Maybe those are some strong words. But when somebody is desperate and they want to save their face, they want to stay in power, what has history taught us? History has shown that in order to take the heat off of the individual who's running the state, there tends to be a false flag or some type of an event that would make this individual look good. 9-11 is a prime example, even though that was in the works for quite some time. Pearl Harbor is probably the best example in American history where FDR was fully aware that it was going to be attacked. And at that time, he was dealing with instability. He was not performing well with the people. And what way or better way to get the country united when we can look at a foreigner or we could look at at somebody outside of the States and, and blame them and they are the enemy. And we're no longer questioning the powers that be. So a couple things we need to explore. Why was the security breached when this happened? When I saw videos of Hamas using paragliders, I, I didn't believe, like I, I was like completely flabbergasted by this because you cannot tell me that the intelligence agency, the intelligence community Mossad, they didn't know. You're going to tell me that IDF, Israeli Defense Force, didn't know? Are you kidding me? This is hogwash. This is garbage to me. It smells and it stinks bad. And then Egypt had to defend its name and said, we notified Israel a couple days before the attack. And Israel is going back and forth and saying, well, we, we weren't informed. And then, okay, we were sort of informed, but then they're not going to admit to that. You have to understand the level of security that is around this wall. 
So let me play this clip. And I know I've been playing a lot of clips, but I think it's better for you to hear the clips than for me to try and explain this because people are putting out such great information. And again, these are the facts. I'm not here to bash the Israelis. I have some Jewish friends and I feel bad for the innocent people. People did die. But we need to understand why these nations are doing what they are doing. And we are all getting caught up in this drama, in the theatrics and becoming emotional rather than analyzing what could happen next if we end up making a, a, a dangerous move. When I say we, it's really the the lunatics that are in power. If they end up making a dangerous move, we are not in the 80s, in the 90s, where you know we, we weren't dealing with nuclear weapons. We are in a different state. A lot of these nations that the U.S. thought that they could push around before, they cannot push around now. And when you don't have Russia and China on your side, it's going to be a big problem. So let me play this clip describing the current state of Gaza right now and and how I'm in disbelief that IDF and, and most importantly, Mossad did not know that this attack was going to happen. Gaza Strip is only 25 miles long and about five miles wide. Two million Palestinians live packed into this tiny space, one of the most densely populated places in the world. Half are children. Many live in refugee camps speckled throughout the besieged territory. A stunning 80% of the population relies on foreign aid. Aptly called an open-air prison, there are only two ways to leave the enclosed area. The Rez crossing into Israeli territory and the Rafa crossing, which goes to Egypt. Both are completely controlled by hostile militaries. What Israel calls a border is actually a heavily militarized perimeter fence comprised of barbed wire, surveillance networks, and lethal no-go zones. If you roam too close to the so-called no-go zone, which extends 300 meters out from the fence, Israeli forces have authorized themselves to shoot to kill. Thousands of unarmed Palestinians have been shot for violating this rule in 2018 alone. The same goes for Gaza's coastline. It is the only place in the world where you can't even flee by boat, as refugees elsewhere often do. Fishermen are restricted to only a few nautical miles from their shore. Strain past that, even by accident, you can be blown out of the water by Israeli warships. A massive seawall on the north and south, currently being extended, boxes them into their small sliver of sea. This violence is compounded by an economic blockade that imposes a chokehold of poverty on Gaza, resulting in one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, according to the World Bank. 70% of the youth are unemployed, with 52% for the general population. So that clip was able to crystallize or provide clarity uh, into the state of, of Gaza. Not literally a state, but just the conditions of the Gaza Strip. There is something that I'm going to say, and it's going to sound controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. That description makes me think of a concentration camp. I know some people are going to be triggered by that. 
and I'm not here. And I, I keep mentioning this because I'm not here to bash the innocent Israelis. This is at the highest levels. This is an orchestrated agenda. But that sounds like a concentration camp to me. That doesn't sound like a place that I want to live in. These people are boxed in. Was their land occupied? We can say that. Does it seem like Israel, at least Netanyahu and his administration want to, and I'm going to say the word, and it may not be the right words to choose, but I'm going to say it anyway, ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip? What you're hearing in U.S. media or, you know, if you're listening somewhere else, they are telling you one side. They're telling you that Hamas, and yes, rightfully so, Hamas are, they're, they're barbaric, okay? A lot of these terrorist groups are barbaric. And it does not mean that the rest of the population in the Gaza Strip feel that way. But the one question that keeps coming up is how did Netanyahu not know about this? Nobody in the U.S. media is asking that question. Nobody in the U.S. media seems to be getting the side of the Palestinians. And I have been watching one particular YouTube channel called Channel 4 News. Uh, They're out of Great Britain. They have been very neutral and ensuring that they report on both sides. And I love that because that is what journalism is about. But we are not getting true journalism. We are getting propaganda. We are getting folks like Lindsey Graham and and Nikki Haley who want to essentially bomb the entire area. Why are they so hell-bent on us going to war? By the way, I think Nikki Haley disqualified herself as being a legitimate or qualified president of the United States. She's insane. I, I never really liked her, but she showed her true colors. So why are they pushing for war? And most importantly, why are they not giving you both sides or giving you the truth? Of course, you're not going to hear the truth. That's why you go to different or alternative news or or different podcasts. Let me just play this final clip. And I know I've played a lot of clips here, but it's to give you a perspective a well-rounded perspective. And maybe some of you will say you never reported much on the Israeli side. I do not condone violence in any way. I really don't. But I do not believe that bringing the U.S. into another war when we've been funding, illegally funding Ukraine, all that money is now gone. We don't have much ammunition. The military that we have right now is a fraction of what we used to have. Okay, we are not ready for this. We don't want this. At least the American people don't want it. At least if you are awake. What happened to those innocent Israelis is a tragedy. But we cannot resolve violence with violence. And let me just play this clip of a journalist. His name is Muhammad Hassan. And He delivers some great points here, and it has to make you think about how you are consuming information. What is factual? What is actually fiction? Here's how unverified information can change the landscape of a war and pave the way for horrific outcomes. You've likely seen the headlines about 40 babies being beheaded by Hamas fighters in the Kfar Aza village in southern Israel. It's hard to miss. It's everywhere. It's been carried by a number of reputable news outlets 
repeated on live TV by powerful political figures and featured on the front cover of British newspapers. The only problem is there's so far no proof to the story, but it hasn't stopped a spiraling and dizzying loop of hysteria from dominating the news cycle over the last few days. So how did it spread? And what is it being used to justify? This story was first reported by the Israeli news outlet I-24 on Tuesday. During an on-the-ground report in the kibbutz of Kfar Aza, an Israeli reporter first mentions the incident. David, it's hard to even explain exactly just the mass casualties that happened right here. In fact, the Israeli military says they still don't have a clear number, but I'm talking to some of the soldiers and they say what they've witnessed as they've been walking through these different houses, these different communities, uh, babies, their heads cut off. That's what they said. Nicole Zedek later clarified that the claim came from one of the Israeli commanders she spoke to. Uh, we walk door after door. We kill a lot of the tourists. We are stronger than them. They are aggressive. They are very bad. They cut head of children, cut head of women, but we are stronger than them. The claim was immediately picked up by other reporters. It was repeated on the front page of the Times newspaper by reporter Anshel Pfeffer, featuring in the headline in quote marks. But in the story itself, there are no quotes that back up the story. Instead, Pfeffer writes some soldiers said there were up to 40 babies' corpses found, and that there were claims that some had their throats cut. But no one is named as having said the quote, and the reporter, despite being on the ground as bodies were being excavated, doesn't claim to have seen this himself. It's also repeated on the front pages of The Independent, Metro, The Telegraph, and The Sun. All of them cite Nicole Zedek's report, but cannot verify it themselves. By Wednesday, questions around the accuracy of the story begin to surface, particularly after a report by Anadolu Agency cites the IDF saying they had not confirmed the allegations. A number of reporters who ran the story then begin to walk it back, saying they were simply repeating what they had heard from soldiers and from the I-24 story. By the evening, the story had changed again with CNN announcing they had confirmed it with Israeli Prime Minister's office. We have some really uh, disturbing new information yeah. uh, out of Israel. The Israeli Prime Minister's spokesman just confirmed babies and toddlers were found with their heads decapitated. Now We had been hearing reports that this had happened, but now we are getting this confirmed directly from the Israeli Prime Minister's office. But that seemed to have been picked up from an interview between Tal Heinrich, a spokesperson from Benjamin Netanyahu with LBC, where she cites the same source as the initial story, soldiers on the ground. When you listed the unconscionable atrocities that took place in that kibbutz, you did say that babies had been decapitated. Can I take that as confirmation then? Because that currently is being reported as reported action. That has actually happened, as it? Toddlers, toddlers, babies, I can tell you that they, uh, some of them, yeah, heads were cut off. This, this is what we're hearing from uh, I, 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 from soldiers on the ground, and yes, they cut off heads. They cut off heads. Then, on Wednesday evening, the U.S. president repeated the claim during a live broadcast, saying he had seen the pictures himself. I, I, I've been doing this a long time. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. I never thought I'd ever... Anyway, that was picked up by almost every U.S. media outlet who ran the story as having finally been confirmed. Then the White House retracted the statement, telling media Biden and other U.S. officials 
have not seen pictures or confirmed such reports independently. The U.S. president's remarks were based on media reports and claims made by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's spokesperson. An IDF spokesperson then tells Sky News Australia that the story has been verified and cites two sources who spoke to the media. I can tell you that it's been verified firsthand by a senior official in our coronary service. And there's a person, a senior person who was identified on record. I think he was on CBS News personally testified to the fact that he indeed saw uh, the heads of uh, severed uh, babies. Uh, and I know that the Israeli Prime Minister's office has also corroborated the news. I, of course, haven't seen the atrocity myself, but I think those two sources enough. But when Sky News interviewed two IDF spokespeople on the ground at Kifar Aza, neither of them mentions the claims despite speaking in detail about the civilian deaths in the village. When Business Insider tried to press the IDF for proof, spokesperson Major Nir Dinar responded, saying the IDF would not investigate the condition of the bodies. Quote, The war crimes that Hamas committed are obvious to the world and are seen in the world, and I don't need to provide any proof of that, and I'm not going to, Dinar said. It's disrespectful for the dead. When pressed further, he said the IDF were relying on testimonies from soldiers pointing to the same video originally aired by I-24. Back to square one. Until today, no conclusive official statement has been released by Netanyahu's office, the IDF, or the coroner's office, shutting down the skepticism around the reports once and for all. It is a horrific circular debate unlikely to be resolved soon. But the conduct of the media must be scrutinized because there are real consequences. To be clear, all the reporting from the ground in places like Kafar Aza indicates hundreds of civilians were killed, and the details are gruesome and hard to comprehend. However, there is always a need for accuracy, specifically in times of war. What Hamas is accused of could potentially amount to war crimes, which means there is a procedure in place for collecting evidence, documenting eyewitness testimony, and verifying each and every claim. When this isn't done, it feeds into a cycle of violent escalation, and in the worst times, justifies the horrific collective punishment of civilians we are now witnessing in Gaza by Israel's army. A siege is appropriate, cutting off power, cutting off water. Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Do you think um, cutting off food, water and electricity is within international law? I think that Israel has an absolute right to defend itself That's against terrorism. That's not the question I asked. It is an answer to the question that, that you've asked, and I think it's an appropriate one at this time. Hamas is a bunch of animals uh, who deserve to be treated like animals. Which they know is going to result in a massive reprisal, in a right justified, completely supported by the West reprisal. And we are unequivocally in support of the state of Israel. Um, as they deal with that threat, uh, and they have the absolute right to defend themselves. It isn't about semantics, the minute details of what did or didn't happen. It's about how stories like this one are being used to silence the criticism of Israel's response in Gaza. The cutting off of water, electricity and food to more than two million people, the relentless and indiscriminate shelling of entire neighborhoods, infrastructure, border crossings, shelters, school. At least 20 families have been extinguished. Thousands more are farewelling each other and preparing to die, knowing there is no way out. This is what is happening right now. Whenever these realities are put to officials, they rebut them by citing the news reports, the ones that haven't been properly verified, 
but whose impacts have already dominated this war. Hundreds of children have died, there's a blockade of fuel. We actually lost 1,200 people that murdered. We are living close to monsters, to inhuman people. And we are fighting for our own, and we will win. Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's, what's wrong with you? Have you not seen what happened? We're fighting Nazis. Israel's army has a history of strategic use of unconfirmed reports. In 2021, during the 10-day bombing raid of Gaza, a number of news organizations, including the New York Times, published a report of a ground invasion of Gaza by Israel, citing an IDF tweet. But that wasn't true. A few hours later, the IDF clarified it had been a miscommunication, but it wasn't. Israeli news reports later described it as a ruse by the IDF to trick Hamas into giving up their positions. And they knew that international media would amplify the statement. Last year, when veteran Palestinian reporter Shadi Nabahakla was killed while covering an Israeli raid on the city of Jenin, IDF accounts published videos of Palestinian militants claiming that they had likely killed her. That report was picked up by international media. It was false. We investigated the incident and concluded, along with other media outlets, that Israeli snipers had killed her, something the IDF later conceded. In Bob Woodward's book, Rage, the American journalist describes an incident from 2017 where Benjamin Netanyahu allegedly shows Donald Trump a video of the Palestinian president Mahmoud Abbas ordering the killing of children. However, after the meeting, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson tells Trump he believes the video was doctored. Just this week, another instance of unverified footage being released and shared by government sources. The video claims to show a police interrogation of a Hamas militant admitting to the rape of women and children. On Wednesday, it was published and shared by multiple Israeli government accounts, including by a foreign ministry spokesperson. Then it was deleted but not before it had spread like wildfire across social media. Despite this repeating pattern, many journalists continue to take information fed by Israeli soldiers as fact. And when these misleading reports become headlines, it allows Israeli officials to shut down public debate about its military protocols, especially those in clear breach of international law. This is how misinformation spreads in times of war. It is how armies and governments can seek to manipulate media to alter public perception. And when journalists don't fulfill their obligations to rigorously fact-check claims before they publish them, it leads to disastrous consequences. Here's an example. In October 1990, a Kuwaiti teenager spoke before US Congress, revealing a horrifying testimony that during Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, she had personally witnessed Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of incubators at hospitals and leaving them to die. The story became headline news. It was corroborated by Amnesty International. It was cited publicly by US President George H.W. Bush and used to rally Congress to support a military intervention against Iraq. The thing is, the story wasn't true. The teenager who spoke in Congress was later identified as Naira al-Sabah, the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, and that her story was written by a public relations campaign lobbying for military intervention. 
When the Gulf War did begin, the crippling sanctions imposed on Iraq and the military tactics of U.S. and Allied forces were defended by citing these and other reports that highlighted the barbarity of Iraqi soldiers. In February 1991, coalition forces bombed an Iraqi convoy that was retreating from Kuwait near the city of Al-Jahra. Hundreds of vehicles were destroyed, with almost all of the occupants inside killed. For years, the strip of road was known as the Highway of Death. In the lead-up to the Second Gulf War, journalists repeated the same mistake, taking the U.S. government's claims of weapons of mass destruction held in Iraq at face value, allowing them to be used as justification for the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Again, as we now know, there was never any evidence. But by the time the truth came to light, more than a million Iraqis were dead, more than five million children orphaned, and an entire region permanently destabilized. Headlines matter. And in war, the battle over headlines is a fight to control the narrative. Journalists must always hold their head above the fray. It is our job to distinguish fact from fiction, because the words we publish matter, and their impacts cannot simply be retracted. This week is a perfect example of what happens when journalism fails. And as this war drags on, we must hold ourselves to a much higher standard. Okay. I've made my point. I've stated as as much as I can to educate all of you on the situation. It is not an easy topic to process. There's definitely more information than what I've delivered in this episode. We do need to move on to other topics that are correlated to this in some way because this is happening as a result of failed attempts to bring lockdowns to destabilize the U.S. at this point. So now they're, they need to take us to war. My final thought on all of what I just presented is that you cannot trust the media. I've, I think I've said that multiple times here, and that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, but you cannot trust what you see or hear from the mainstream media. They are not there to educate you. They're not there to provide the facts, to tell the truth. They are there to produce an outcome, to produce a response. And remember, this is all about free will. I know I have to tie it back to spirituality here, but your response generates some type of energy or outcome. And that is what they want you to do. They want you to hate the other side. They want you to exhibit hatred. This is, you know, there are folks here who've never even been to the Middle East, let alone they've never been to Israel. They've never been to, you know, Palestine. They've never been to Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. You guys don't even know anybody there. I mean, if you do, great. But most Americans, I think it's like 50% of Americans don't even have a passport. And yet I see people online wanting to bomb folks without even thinking rationally like what the, the consequences would be. Do you understand that we can have folks bomb us here? We don't agree with what the politicians are doing, but they seem to be the voice of reason for the United States. So the whole point is that we have to be careful 
with how we react to these situations. This is not easy for anybody. And you can't stick your head in the sand and think that it's going to go away. It is going to be diabolical. It is going to be a very dangerous time. But with more knowledge, you can equip yourself and avoid some of the mistakes that have happened in the past. These forces are trying to lead us into a very dangerous path so that they can bring in a one world government. Okay, that one world government would mean one central currency would make sure that all nations are militarized. Martial law is everywhere. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? Well, think twice about it, because if you keep promoting this, taking a side, hating the people, that's what they want and they want it to all collapse. So if you want to call me names because I want peace, I'm not trying to play dumb here. I do want peace. I know you want to be able to live in your home and 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 be with your family or your friends or your loved one. And you just want to have a peace of mind. What's wrong with that? You want to be able to live in the home that you, you've created or, or you've built, see the fruits of your labor. There's nothing wrong with that. So why should I advocate for war? I don't want war. But guess what? This war is not going to be like any other war. Because World War III is supposed to be the final one and the most destructive one. And that has been said in many occult writings. This is it. Can we stop it? Okay, so now you know my position. I don't want this. But I'm thinking rationally here and I just want people to be educated on the events that are happening right now. So how am I going to transition into the next topic? How are they related? Okay, let's talk about Hawaii. For those of you who may not be familiar with what happened on August 8th, I I shouldn't really say all of Hawaii. It would just be more Lahaina had experienced these wildfires. Now, I literally for a minute thought this is unusual for Hawaii. Like it was the same reaction that I had regarding Canada's wildfires and then Australia's wildfires. It seemed unusual, but I could not put my finger towards it. Like I could not figure out what was off about it. Shortly after these wildfires happened, things started emerging that were very unusual. Locals were saying that certain roads were blocked, so they were unable to escape. There was footage of people running into the ocean. I thought, this is freaking unusual. What's going on here? We then learned that the children, all of the children were sent home prior to, or I think it was at the very early mornings of the fire because it did start Uh, I believe early in the morning and it lasted until the evening and the following day. The children, about 2,000 children are missing. They can't account for them. And I don't think that they disappeared. I think they were killed. You can't tell me that was all strategic. And furthermore, let's tie this back to what happened in Israel regarding the security. Hawaii has the most sophisticated sort of system when it comes to uh, alerting their their fellow 
residents or I should say citizens of Hawaii. They have the best system in the entire world. Okay. It did not go off. It did not go off. So I'm seeing all of this and thinking this doesn't add up. What happened? Why did it happen? And the backstory is that the folks of Lahaina have been pushing back against BlackRock uh, representatives of these large corporations who want to pretty much demolish the neighborhood. And this is a neighborhood that has existed for generations. Like generations have lived there. Okay. And if you're not familiar with the history of Hawaii, Hawaii became an American state. I think it was like in the 50s or 60s. It's really a relatively young state, but they did not want to become an American state. And so here's another example where a nation steals or occupies a, a, a region, a territory. And I think the advantage here for the United States was due to its presence. Like there, there's a huge military presence in Hawaii. Um, could it be resources? It's always definitely resources. But if you think about how the United States military can spread its, uh, its sort of bases, you know, Hawaii is a stepping, sort of like a stepping stone or an area to what's the region? Asia. Uh, we would never have to fight Australia, but to Asia, right? There could be other reasons and I'll have to look into it, but you just need to understand that Hawaii, or at least the folks of Hawaii, the citizens of Hawaii did not want to become Americans, but here we are. Uh, and they didn't receive any aid. They did not get any aid from the government. And yet the government is willing to shell money to Ukraine and it's now to, to Israel, but they can't even help their own people. We have a lot of effing problems here. So let's get back to Hawaii. The fires were very unusual. Why were they unusual? Because when you look at the scene, it was very alarming. Literally things were pulverized and it didn't make sense how their system failed, how they decided to send children home and the children died. What was even more alarming was the fact that law enforcement blocked people from leaving. And so you know that it was a deliberate kill. The government, whether it is local, state, or federal, or all of the above, wanted them dead. I know that sounds very morbid and very dark, but these are the types of people that we are dealing with. So let me play this clip because this is where I realized we are not in normal times right now. Uh, this whole idea of, of guns and everything, totally understand when you're dealing with an enemy on the grounds, but they have weapons. They have technology that we have not been exposed to. And you think you know your opponents, you think you know the opposition, but I think we need to wake up quickly. So let me play this report so that you can understand how the Hawaii fires started. Steve Favis is an expert in computer science and advanced robotics. He has been researching the Maui fires 
and has compiled evidence that the technology exists to have started these fires from a satellite in Earth orbit. He has also confirmed that the CCP had satellites capable of doing so above Maui at the time of the fires. His work has been published on his website, stevefavis.com, and includes everything you need to recreate these findings. The most efficient way to ignite a fire on the surface from a satellite in Earth orbit would be to paint the target in segments by pulsing the laser with an advanced targeting system. To see if this were possible, Favis calculated what it would require to create a meter-wide, mile-long fire. Fired from a satellite, the Earth's atmosphere will absorb and scatter some of the laser energy. And so the laser would need to be in a wavelength range that minimizes this. The most effective wavelength would be in the near-infrared range, which would allow better transmission through the atmosphere. The near-infrared range would be invisible to the naked eye and would also have a minimal reaction with objects colored blue on the Earth's surface. The power of the laser would need to be in the hundreds of kilowatts range, and so Favis based his calculations on a 10-megawatt laser firing from Earth orbit. Assuming that the atmospheric loss amounts to 50% of the overall power and only 5 megawatts reaches the surface as a 1 square meter beam, it would ignite a fire almost instantly. If this 5 megawatt beam was pulsed across a 1 meter by 1 mile long area in segments, then the time to ignite the entire area would be roughly 2.7 minutes, and it would only take approximately 8.8 seconds to melt an aluminum alloy wheel. The amounts of energy required to pulse a 10 megawatt laser for 2.7 minutes would require approximately 3,220 capacitors, which would amount to about 32,200 kilograms in weight. Using MetLab software and plugging in public data provided from NORAD, he found that satellites launched and monitored by the CCP were directly above the Maui fires at the time of ignition. The CCP's most powerful rocket, the March 5, can launch up to 48,500 kilograms of payload, which is more than enough to carry the required payload in Favis's calculations. But Favis has found that the CCP has much more powerful lasers deployed already. He has calculated that the CCP has up to 70 gigawatt lasers in Earth orbit right now. That's at least a hundred times more powerful than what he factored into these calculations. Adjusting NORAD's Default Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC, to the local time zones, Favis found the following. The Olinda fire was ignited at approximately 10.47 p.m. on August 7th. At this exact time, CCP satellite labeled NORAD 53299 was directly over the location. The Lahaina fire was ignited at approximately 6.37 a.m. on August 8th. At this exact time, CCP satellite labeled NORAD 55836 was directly over the location. The Kula fire was ignited at approximately 11.30 a.m. on August 8th. At this exact time, CCP satellite labeled 
NORAD 53299 was directly over the location. The so-called deep state does not want you to know that deadly lasers of mass destruction are freely traveling above us. And you can check this all for yourself at stevefavis.com where he provides the source code and has developed a specific software program that you can download and check for these satellites yourself. And uh, it's a very short program. It's only maybe like 15 lines of code using uh, existing um, satellite tracking software that's available online. So I'm going to play the scenario here. Um, let me just show you what you're looking at here. Um, satellites always use UTC. And uh, if you can see here, Han, the, the time and most interest is in Honolulu on August 8th between 4 to 10 a.m. And the UTC time here conversion, it's really confusing converting time zones, is about right here. So this is the this is the area right here I want to focus on as far as when these fires were reported in Maui. As you can see right here, this is uh, 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. basically. And I'm going to play the simulation here. Um, this is the time that's reported in UTC, so be sure to be aware of UTC time difference. But this, uh, this satellite so far, which is under the... Um, uh, 5728 NORAD CAT ID uh, NORAD tracks these things this is all publicly available GPS data uh, the telemetry data uh, is for NORAD 57288 and it's an unknown payload launched by CCP and uh, the payload's large enough to host a space-based laser and the physics are proven on my website at mrrobots.com slash lasers. So I'm going to play the video now, okay? I'm going to clear the screen now. And then I'm going to play the video. So here's a passing of it right now. Um, it's going to come through here and pass. Again, this is... NORAD CAT 57288, and this is Hawaii over here. You can see just when the sun rose around here, this is Hawaii right here, okay? So this is the area that we're focusing on when this satellite passes. Okay, it's about to pass now. I'm going to pause it when it, when it uh, goes about uh, the peak area. And I'll give you the exact time of it when it pa pa uh, passes over Maui. And it's probably about peak here. It's at its apex here. And uh, the time of the UTC is about 1420 UTC. And that's about 220 PM uh, UTC, August 8th. And um, Honolulu, it's about 4... AM, uh, so that's about 14.4, so this is early morning, so again, as this thing still passes, you can see how fast it's going, and uh, that phase right there between is enough to start the fires and uh, cause uh, damage, basically. I'll run the, I'll run it, rewind it a little bit, and I'll play it a little closer. So I know that one is very hard to follow and connect the dots. Because as an American, you're wondering, why would CCP 
fry the the people of Hawaii. Why? And I think it's much deeper than that. I think we are thinking as if the United States is having a conflict with China when in fact we are at least at the highest levels, including our president right now, is in bed with China. So is it possible for traders in our government to use weaponry from a so-called, uh, you know, enemy? Very possible. It could be an enemy on the surface, an enemy to the public, but in private, they're definitely working with each other. This is it. I, I think I was for a moment very speechless. <laughs> there were people who were saying, oh, there were direct energy weapons that were used and so forth. But you got to describe how. How did it happen? Because in people's minds, they're thinking that an energy weapon could be seen. That there would be some type of laser. But that's not the case. We're, we're not. We're, we're so past that. Okay. You need to understand that the world and the universe works in three components, energy, frequency, and vibration. And there are certain wavelengths that we cannot see. There are certain frequencies that we consciously may not be aware of, but subconsciously we we can be notified of it. And sometimes there are energies that we may or may not feel. This is a concept that is very, very deep. And like I said, well, I was going to say this, but after learning about how the people of Hawaii were killed, I didn't go into a depression, but it was very, very dark, very dark. I mean, if you want to talk about one of the worst ways to die, imagine being, and I hate to put it bluntly, fried to death. That's, it's it's really hard, um, especially when I heard this clip because it, I can't even imagine. I just, I cannot imagine the terror that people endured. So let me just play this clip and then we can, move on to something I wouldn't say it's a little bit lighter but it wouldn't be as heavy as this topic so let me just play this clip so that you can grasp really the true tragedy of this and I know folks have sort of moved on from this topic but these are things that we need to continue asking why did the government fail our people like this fast as I can. I'm a flight attendant. I'm in Maui. I got picked up by my shuttle driver to go to the hotel earlier. And he was just explaining all the tragic events, obviously, that have happened this week in Maui with the fires. He was saying that the news isn't even covering the gifs of it and that the news has only confirmed 103 bodies dead as of today. And they have already confirmed here on the island of Maui that over 480 people have been confirmed dead. They're only 13% through the town of Lahaina with going through the houses to find the dead bodies. He is volunteering his time going into the homes to collect the bodies. He works part-time at the morgue. And he is just, the stories he told me, you guys, of what he saw and what he witnessed during that time is absolutely gut-wrenching. 
He found so many children, children and moms holding each other, infants, toddlers, the unimaginable, husbands and wives, whole entire family members in a room just huddling together, burning to death. He's collecting, it's all bones. So he's grabbing the bones with the ash, shoveling them into body bags. They have no more room on the island in the morgue. So they are shipping in containers to hold these body bags. People were running into the ocean to escape the flames. They, the flames came so fast, burnt all the boats and went over the surface level of the ocean and was just burning people left and right. People were burning in their cars. I mean, this is absolutely tragic and the news hasn't even come close to covering what's really going on here on the island of Maui. The link to donate is in my bio. Please don't donate to Red Cross or FEMA. More information is below. And that last point she made about donating, she is 100% correct. Do not ever donate to the Red Cross or to FEMA. That money never makes its way to the victims. I will mention this one thing, and I forgot to mention it when I was speaking about the casualties in Israel and in um, the Gaza Strip. The numbers that the media reports to you about the, the number of folks who died, I want you to understand that that number is always on the lower end of the scale. When they started reporting the number of deaths in Hawaii and the number kind of stopped, I didn't believe it for a fucking second. I knew that they were covering it up. So when you hear these figures of a thousand or 7,900 people who have been uh, injured in the Gaza Strip, I want you to pretty much double that number. This is something that I've learned over time, especially when you speak to locals, uh, especially when it deals with such mass tragedies like this. The numbers that they report are usually lower. Let that sink in because that's really, really sad. And this is why I just despise having to talk about these things but we really need to expose what's happening. You're being lied to on a daily basis and you need to do your own research. Thankfully, there are folks like me who really do care about releasing the truth or at least getting to the bottom of what we are being told and what is truly the agenda or the next set of steps that they're going to take. And I do want to mention that you need to be careful that you shouldn't do X, that you shouldn't do Y, but I also understand that you have free will and you can do whatever the hell you want with this information. You can reject it. Uh, you can dismiss it. You can call me all sorts of names, even though I don't believe that I should be called those names. I just want to get to the truth because the truth is such a vital thing at this point and it is going to continuously be attacked and we need people to exercise that type of principle. Well, I'm definitely passing my last episode. Well, not really my last episode, but this is probably going to be the longest episode that I've I've done because there's just so much that needs to be covered here. So recently we saw in Canada's parliament that they acknowledged a Nazi. I can't even believe we're at this point. I really cannot believe that we are acknowledging true Nazis in Western civilization and people don't even know that. <laughs> like, like, 
what is going on? This happened not too long ago. And is Trudeau still in power? Of course. Uh, did the speaker step down? Yes. Was it really reported in the news? Barely until there were independent journalists who were pushing the hell out of this, which caused the rippling effect and the outrage. Now, the reporter who revealed who this soldier was and the way that they described it was he was a soldier who was fighting the Russians during World War II. Uh, If you know your history, you would know that the Germans were the ones who were fighting the Russians. But you see how slick they are? Unbelievable. Unfreaking believable. So the reporter who revealed this Nazi's identity, and he's a British reporter, well, guess what? He got arrested. (laughs) He got arrested. But the so-called Nazi, nothing has happened to him. This is so Twilight. I just don't even know. Like, this is the Twilight Zone. This is the freaking Twilight Zone. I don't know what to think anymore. But this is just the situation that we're in. And if you're feeling like things are going left, not literally like progressive left, but I'm just, it's, it's going sideways Yes, you are not going crazy. This is, in fact, the world that we're living in, and it has become insane. Now, if you want to bring sanity back, you know, maybe we need to start calling these people out and putting people in, or at least we need to hold them accountable, okay? We need to do something about it because this is getting out of control. Now, speaking of getting out of control, the economy the economy. Oh my gosh. The U.S. economy. Where can I begin here? Well, student loan repayment just sort of resurfaced again for some folks who have been asleep for the past two, three years and uh, folks need to start repaying them. Now, I think when we are to look at the past three years, and how the United States has been performing, I would say that the past three years since COVID are outliers. They they literally are years that we would consider an anomaly because the numbers for unemployment are really butchered. The number of folks who received the PPP, who shouldn't have received it, Um, a lot of them went bankrupt. We know that there are folks who didn't make such payments to their student loans. There were people who purposely were not paying for rent. It is such a disaster. I don't even know how else to describe it. So now you have the student loans. We have folks who are financing their vehicles and paying a thousand dollars a month as a, a a sort of like a car note. I'm not even joking. There are people who are making monthly payments of a thousand dollars a month towards their vehicle. That's what they finance their their vehicle for. So you're telling me that there isn't going to be a collapse, especially the destruction of the middle class, where people are paying cars that they can't afford and they're not worth what they 
are are really like I, I would never pay forty fifty thousand dollars for a what is it Honda Accord like a basic sedan you you can barely find a new car that is less than twenty five or thirty thousand now so people are paying for cars that they can't afford people's houses are becoming more expensive people now have to pay their student loans which by the way I've realized that there are a lot of people or at least the students who took out loans they have variable interest that is very alarming that is so alarming but it's even more alarming that they would take out a loan for a hundred thousand 90,000, 50,000, 200,000. Yes, you can probably debate and and say, hey, if they went to medical school uh, or if they went to law school, maybe that's justified. I can understand some of those occupations. But if you did liberal arts, why did you go to Yale or Harvard for liberal arts? You could have went to a community college. Well, let alone, why did you even do a liberal arts degree? And now you are in $100,000 in debt. And it's really mind-boggling when you look at some of these videos on YouTube and people talk about how much money they are in debt. Or you can go on TikTok. It, it It's heartbreaking, but at the same time, it's like, I, like you, you should have known. I know the banks are predators, but... <laughs> What made you think that you should be obligated to $100,000? And for the folks who believe that their student loan is going to be forgiven, Biden is buying votes, okay? I always thought that there was a catch to the student loan forgiveness situation. There are some people, I guess they're income-driven, and they had their loans forgiven, Well, guess what? There's a little catch to that. If you are living in a state that will tax you, because I guess now that is deemed income, they're going to tax you and they're going to send you a nice little bill. And I also know that there are states that are considering changing laws so that they can collect those taxes off of that loan forgiveness. And by the way, the federal government is going to send you a nice little bill after 2025. So you're cheering now, but you're not going to like it in the next couple years. Oh, by the way, I happened to look at Argentina and just wanted to understand how they are right now. Because if you didn't know, a couple months ago, they hit 100% inflation. Guess where they are right now? Do you know what their inflation rate is? 130%. 130%. In my next episode, we're going to go a little bit deeper into Argentina because I I don't understand why it hasn't collapsed, but it is going to collapse. There's no way that you can walk into a grocery store and then the price is, let's say, $250. And by the time you get to the cash register to pay for that product, it's double the amount. That's what's going to happen here. It's what happened in Zimbabwe. But I'll get into that in into more depth in the next episode because it's really something that I need to spend 30, 40 minutes on. 
Now, I was going to talk about the Trump indictment because I really believe that it's important for everybody to see the blueprint that is being played right now, which is going to be implemented for anybody that opposes the leading party, or we should just say the globalist, the establishment, essentially anything against New World Order. But I'm going to wait until the next episode to kind of break that information down because this episode has been very heavy in terms of information that's been thrown at you. And we are pushing two hours. So I'm going to pause on the Trump indictment. And there's obviously more news that needs to be covered in the next episode. But I'm going to wrap it up right now. I hope you've learned a lot of material. This is why it's so important for you to do your own research, your own investigation, come to your own conclusions. I present the facts. And of course, I will have my own opinions. But you need to formulate your own consensus on what is happening in the world, how it affects you, and what you need to do next so you are not a victim or even direct collateral as a result of the things that we are witnessing and going to experience, whether here in the States or anywhere else in the globe. So thank you for listening to this episode. I know I've been out for quite some time. It's just been really hectic. Again, I am committed to this and I am very thankful for your support. Please, please, please be safe. It's getting really crazy out there, but I will be speaking to you guys in another episode.